This morning we want to think about the decisions that we make in life, having regard to the little book of Ruth in the Bible and the decisions that we read about there and how those decisions work themselves out. In life we make decisions every day. Most of them are of no great consequence. But from time to time there comes a point when we make a major decision which sometimes sets the course of our, the rest of our lives. Sometimes we give those decisions very careful thought beforehand. Some, some of us make uh, decisions without very much uh, forethought. Sometimes we have lots of information about those decisions. Sometimes we have only very partial information. Sometimes we have a good idea what the outcome might be, but often the outcome is not what we might have expected. There are many things in life that we don't have any influence over, that we can't decide about. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose our circumstances of our birth and childhood. We have no control over our intelligence, our physical characteristics, our height, our hair color, or where we were born and grew up. As our Lord reminded us, we have no influence over the height, our height, nor the length of our days, no matter how much thought we give it. But we, especially when we're adults, we do have considerable influence uh, over the course of our life. Um, even though there are many things that we don't completely control. Take an example. What we eat and how we look after the, our bodies and the decisions we make about those over the course of many years can profoundly affect our long-term health. If we make good decisions now about our diet, it can have lasting benefits. We're not robots, we, don't, we make good decisions, and sometimes we make bad decisions. Some people can be fatalistic and believe they have no power at all over the course of their lives. We can be the opposite and think we can control everything. Significantly, the Bible teaches and tells stories that weave together God's sovereignty in our lives and our individual responsibility. It's not all one or all the other. The little book of Ruth beautifully illustrates in a very short and spurringly told story the consequences and the outworking of human decisions within the context of a God who is gracious and guidant and guides and in this little book, we see in the decisions that were made by individuals, the consequences for good and for bad of individual human decisions. But we also see the sovereignty of God, whose great purposes for us is never frustrated by our foolishness, our perversity. The book of Ruth is set in the period of the judges. It's a little insight into the lives of a little family as they respond to their trials, to their failures and mistakes, it tells of their tears and their sadness, and eventually it's a story of restoration and redemption. And woven into the story of the book of Ruth is the hand of a gracious God who always, always generously responds to those who come to him and those who enter into his care. It's a story of how God will care for us and bless those who seek him. And we're going to look this morning, spend a little time with these individuals and see how the decisions they made worked themselves out, sometimes for great loss, but also for great gain. 
And we're going to take a little time to reflect on the decision of a couple, Elimelech and Naomi, who were discouraged and disillusioned and decided to leave their hometown Bethlehem and live in Moab. We shall also look at the decision of a middle-aged woman who recognizes that she's made mistakes and decides to turn back. That is Naomi in her decision to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem. We shall look at that courageous decision of Ruth, a foreign young woman who made the decision to go with her mother-in-law and trust in the living God. And we shall refer only briefly to the decision of her sister-in-law, Orpah, who decided to remain in Moab. And finally, we'll reflect briefly on Boaz's decision, a generous and honourable man, to marry Ruth and fulfil his God-given responsibilities. First decision, that of Elimelech and Naomi. The book of Ruth starts with these words. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They went to Moab and lived there. This was a decision that was prompted by difficult material circumstances. Elimelech and Naomi were among the early children of the occupation of the Promised Land. They had received their God-given possession in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moreover, their property allocation was at Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Yet, there was a famine in the land. Something had gone badly wrong. And adding to their disappointment, there is more than a hint in Scripture that their two sons, Malon and Killian, were weak and sickly children. They lived in the time of the judges, that turbulent period on the history of the nation of Israel, when there was repeated turning away from God disaster, and uh, often restoration following repentance. The book of Judges gives us an unflinching record of the most dreadful individual and national behavior, which led to God allowing them to fall into the hands of neighboring nations, bringing great sadness and pain. Frequently, however, individuals were raised up by God to bring restoration. Going back to Naomi and Elimelech, they considered their response probably over a considerable period to the difficult circumstances they found themselves in, trying to eke a living in the stony hills of Judah at a place and at a time when food was scarce. And they would have heard of the plenty in neighboring Moab. To them, Moab became an increasingly attractive option. What was the value to they started to think of having a God-given allocation if they couldn't feed their little family. And so they made their decision to move to Moab. If you had asked them why they were leaving their God-given inheritance, they may well have responded, it was for the sake of the boys. There's more than a hint in scripture in the story that they didn't intend it to be a permanent move, maybe just for a year or two until circumstances improved in Bethlehem because the Bible tells us that they went to live for a while in the country of Moab, but later it states that they went and lived there and 
Then later again, we read that after they had lived there about 10 years, Moab had become for them not a short-term relocation. And from that decision of Elimelech and Naomi to move to Moab came the almost inevitable outcome that the two boys eventually marry Moabite women. And no doubt Naomi and Elimelech tried to rationalize that as well. They had not only turned their back on the place that God had provided for them, but they'd gone from the purity and elegance of the God of Israel into the midst of the idolatry of pagan Moab with its appalling gods of sexual license and child sacrifice. Moab was a nation born out of incest with a national character portrayed consistently in scripture where um, there was unfettered physical and sexual appetite and that was rationalized with their national religion, especially the unsavory god Chemish. And furthermore, not only was Moab a place of an appalling pagan religion, but they were a people who consistently were opposed to and undermined the people of God. When the nation of Israel were refugees escaping slavery in Egypt and on their way to Israel, the king of Moab, Balak at that time, repeatedly sought to purchase curses on this nation of Israel. Another king, Eglon, who was grotesquely obese, had been a cruel oppressor. And some of the women of Moab had seduced the men of Israel um, on their journey and had brought disaster in the people of God. And their God, Chemish, required and demanded human sacrifice. In these circumstances, may, might well wonder, what were Naomi and Elimelech doing, going to, staying in, settling down in Moab? Their ill-considered move ended in tragedy. It ended in the death, first of all, of Naomi's husband, and then the two boys. Humanly speaking, Naomi was left alone and bereft of all that is truly of value. She came to recognize, after 10 years in Moab, that when she had left Bethlehem, she had been full, to use her own words. She may not have had much materially, but she had had everything that really mattered, a family and a faith and a living good and righteous God. And after 10 years in Moab, she considers she is nothing. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, when she returned to Bethlehem, told her neighbors to call her Mara, which means bitter. She had become an embittered, prematurely aged woman without any hope or future. She was a broken woman. There is a lesson, I think, for this, in this for us, because it is sometimes tempting to think that the Christian life, the faithful life of a Christian is just too difficult. We can look around and see the prosperity of the wicked, to use the words of the psalm writer, and that can happen in a myriad ways. In our workplace, we might feel we have been overlooked and others who less ability or less effort, who have all the right connections, progress in their career. We can be considered to be a fool because we maintain our integrity and do the right thing. Some of us have to contend with those inscrutable adverse circumstances in life when love, for example, seems to pass us by. 
we can be left with all sorts of responsibilities while others live a life of carefree abandon. We can be left alone while others seem to be at the centre of the party. It's in these sort of circumstances we can be tempted to throw it all in and pursue the pleasures of sensual living. There's nothing new about this. The um, stories in Pilgrim's Progress um, refer to different characters who started out on the Christian pathway, but when difficulties came along, they soon packed it in. We shouldn't be surprised because the path and the journey of the righteous is often strewn with difficulties and challenges and patient perseverance is called for. We can see this in the life of the saints, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses is just one example of a man who considered the cost of discipleship and made a decision to follow God and to be with his people. He had a choice, unlike many of us, of either a lifetime of luxury and indolence in Pharaoh's palace, are the trials and the opposition and the misunderstanding of leading a band of complaining slaves out of their miserable state. But the book of um, Hebrews summarizes his decision by saying, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. And of course, the key words are the short time. Our Lord taught this himself. He taught us in the parable of the sower with the seed that was sown in the shallow soil so that when the heat of the sun came up, the plant uh, withered, or the seed that was in the stony ground when difficulties came along, uh, the word of God was choked. And yet there is in that decision of Elimelech and Naomi a warning that sometimes it is foolish to take the easy option or of turning aside when difficulty comes along. Eventually there may be failure, perhaps inevitably there will be deep loss. Naomi came to realize that despite all the difficulties of Bethlehem, even in a season of famine, she had gone out full. It can be a very foolish thing to make decisions on the basis of material circumstances or what we think will be materially to our advantage. The second decision that we can consider in the book of Ruth is Naomi's decision to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem. The reason for her decision was twofold. First of all, there was the negative, the triple blow of the loss of her husband and her two sons. But then there was the positive side to it. She heard the news that in Bethlehem, God had provided bread for his people. She was a widow without children, or it would appear grandchildren, living as a foreigner away from God's people. There was nothing now to keep her in Moab other than her pride. To go back to Bethlehem in these circumstances was going to be humiliating. She returned her alone with her grief. On the anvil of adversity, she was a broken woman verging on destitution. And so she goes back to Bethlehem uh, completely transformed. She had left discontent, negative, critical. When she returns, she recognizes that in fact, she had been full and had everything that mattered, a husband and two sons. But sometimes it is at our lowest moments in life 
that the glimmer of hope once, begin, once again begins to shine. And we see this in the book of Ruth, that the grace of God, once she makes that decision, starts to become evident again. She thought she was alone. She thought she was abandoned. But from the most unlikely of sources, she discovered that she had a devoted companion because Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, was determined to stay with her. She could never have expected that. She could never have expected that Ruth would be so resolute in her determination to go with her. Secondly, when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she was provided for in a general way as a widow. She came at the beginning of the barley harvest and God's law required the gleanings of the fields to be left for such as her, the widow, the foreigner, and the fatherless. And she came at the beginning of the harvest First of all, wheat, which was followed by wheat and olives and grapes and all the Mediterranean crops. So she was coming in at the right time. And fourthly, and most significantly, it happened that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, started her gleaning, not in the field of a random stranger, but in the field of Boaz, who proved himself to be a most good and generous benefactor, who protected and provided for Ruth and Naomi. And that was only the beginning of the restoration of Naomi. Her neighbors did not condemn her for bringing a Moabitess woman into their midst, but they recognized in Ruth an extraordinary devotion to her mother-in-law Naomi of kindness and care so that they came to say about her that Ruth was better than seven sons. And finally and most significantly Ruth presented Naomi, her mother-in-law, with her little boy, who became the focus of Naomi's love and devotion. So she who had thought of herself as an isolated, abandoned, worn-out woman full of grief, discovered in her decision to return to Bethlehem that she had a daughter who was better than any, any daughter, other daughter, or many sons, a daughter-in-law who was better than any daughter or many sons, a son-in-law who cared for her as if she was his mother, and a little grandson given into her care who proved to be at the heart of God's purposes for our redemption and restoration. She had lost a husband and two sons, but she had gained three others, her daughter-in-law, her son-in-law, and this little grandson. And through her tears, God's great purposes, and through that decision, God's great purposes were worked out through that decision of Naomi. And so we see in the story of Naomi that for the prodigal who goes away and makes wrong decisions, there is a way back to God and his people. But not only is there a way back to God and his people, but we can experience and receive God's extraordinary blessing. The end can be much better than the beginning. Failure and defeat does not need to be the end of our story. I do love the decision of Ruth 
that foreign young woman who made that remarkable, courageous, determined decision to follow God and Naomi. It had always been God's intention that the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, would be a witness to the Gentile nations of the greatness and the goodness of God. They were to be a blessing to all the earth, and through Jesus Christ they were. And we should never forget the blessing that came to all of us through the nation of Israel. Ruth would have seemed the most unlikely of persons to move from the sordid idolatry in which she had grown up to become a devoted follower of the Lord God, but she did. We are not told exactly why she made that decision, but we can be pretty sure it had a great deal to do with Naomi. The mother-in-law and daughter-in-law relationship is infamous for being often fraught and difficult, stressful and challenging for both. Yet Ruth came to not just love her mother-in-law, but was determined to stay with her no matter what the cost. It may be partly because, as Naomi's name suggests, she was a pleasant person, easy to get along with. And she had a, probably a very positive influence on Ruth. But it does appear that even in the dark days of Naomi's life in Moab, in the midst of all that idolatry, and even through all her loss and grief, she maintained her faith. Because when Ruth comes to make her decision, she says, I want your God, Naomi, to be my God. Naomi pointed out to Ruth the costs of her decision. When she left Naomi, she was turning her back on her own people, the people of her own language. She was turning her back on her own family. And she was going to be moving in to a place where she was, could well expect to be treated with suspicion, if not outright hostility. For she was a Moabitess, and as we noted, they were notorious for their opposition to the people of God. But more than all that, as Naomi pointed out to Ruth, which she probably already knew herself, that if she went with Naomi, instead of staying and having every prospect of marrying again, and within her own people and having children, she was probably condemning herself to be a permanent widow. What could she anticipate in the land of Israel but a, a challenging life, a constrained life, a foreigner, an alien, vulnerable, no one to protect her, only the prospect of having to look after an aging woman who had become embittered. And when she moved on, a long, lonely widowhood without any family support. And furthermore, there was the decision of her sister-in-law, Orpah, who after initially setting out with Naomi, when she considered more carefully the cost of that move, turned back. So that only Ruth was left with Naomi, the two widows turning towards that Jordan River in silence, that crossing that symbolic crossing of the River Jordan, followed by that long, arduous ascent of over a thousand meters as they rose towards the hills and fields of Bethlehem. Naomi was coming home. Ruth, as she discovered, was entering in. 
The statement that she made suggests the reasons why she left Moab and went with Naomi. And those are some of the, I think, the most remarkable words anywhere in scripture when she said, when Ruth said to Naomi, don't entreat me to leave you or to return from following after you. Where you go, I will go. Will you stay? I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. The Lord do so, and more also to me, if anything other than death separates you and I. Ruth made this decision, note, not knowing the blessings of God that were going to flow to her. She made what she considered to be the right decision without regard to the potential benefits because she knew nothing of them. But do note that in the book of Ruth, that once Ruth made that decision, God provided for her, and God provided for every aspect of her need. First of all, God provided for Ruth, and through Ruth, Naomi's material needs. She had the God-given right to go in to the field of any owner in Bethlehem at the harvest time and glean and glean in the fields. But in the, the goodness and the providence of God, she happened to go into the field of Boaz, who was a re- relative of Naomi's. And Boaz turned out to be just no ordinary owner, but he was a good and a godly man and a man of substance. And Ruth found in the fields of Boaz that not only were her basic needs provided for her, and Naomi's basic needs, but he made sure that she was provided for materially, abundantly. They, her and Naomi, had more food than they needed. Her cup was full and overflowing. God provided for Ruth's material needs. He provided for her physical safety, because as a foreigner she was going to be particularly vulnerable. He provided for her rest, after the trauma, bereavement, and emigration. And he provided for her emotional needs because Ruth did not end up a perpetual widow, but Boaz became her husband. Her first husband failed her. He sickened and died. Boaz provided generously for her, recognized her good qualities and virtues, and eventually loves the girl. And there was mutual love and honor between them. And finally, and most significantly, God provided for Ruth spiritually. Not only did she become the great-grandmother of David, Israel's greatest and most successful king, but she is in the line of our Lord Jesus, as Matthew goes out of his way to point out. Orpah came from obscurity in Moab, passed back into obscurity in Moab, and is never heard tell of again. Ruth came from obscurity and entered into great blessing. Ruth became an essential part of God's plan for our salvation. We too have a similar decision to make. Who will we follow in life? Whose word will we believe? What will we build our life upon? We need to decide carefully and wisely. If we make the wrong decision in life, 
we will find that we've been building a castle in sand only to find that when the ultimate test comes, it will be swept away. I sometimes think of my um, great-grandfather, whose same name as me, William Robinson. About 150 years ago, in the early years of his marriage, he and his wife, Mary Jane, choose, chose to believe in and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Their subsequent actions confirmed that that was a genuine decision. They went on to live long, simple, hard-working and modest lives. He was a small-time farmer and a part-time weaver on a handloom of linen cloth, um, living on a tiny three-acre holding in North Armagh. Mary Jane brought up our large family and was also a weaver. They lived in a small cottage, providing for a large family, and knew what it was to experience loss. In his teenage years, another daughter died as a young woman. But note that almost all his large family followed their decision to commit to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Nearly all his grandchildren made that same decision, and so down through to my generation and now into subsequent generations. They could never have anticipated a way back when they made that decision to follow Jesus Christ and trust in him, how that decision would ripple down through the generations. A few years ago, when I was going through my father's papers after his death, I came across a letter that had been written to my, my, by my father, by an older acquaintance of his, who had known my great-grandfather, and who referred in that letter to how he, as a young man, uh, had come to know Christ partly and significantly through the influence of my great-grandfather. I tell this brief account of my forefathers, foreparents, to show the significance of making a wise decision, even when that decision can be at great cost. And finally, let's quickly reflect on Boaz's decision. He was a single man. It would appear he was in middle age by the time Naomi and Ruth come into his life. He was well established and prosperous. A man of considerable substance with a large workforce when it came to harvest time. But he was also a godly man who recognized the Lord in all his activity and cared for all those for whom he had responsibility. Yet he was a bachelor. It was by the grace of God that Ruth entered Boaz's field that first morning. Because Boaz was a good man, she was safe there, she was well provided for. She might have been vulnerable in another man's field as a defenseless foreigner. And because he was a generous man, she was provided for far beyond the minimal requirements of the Old Testament law. But there came a night in the life of Boaz when he had to make a decision. He had taken note of Ruth's reputation and virtues. But on the threshing floor, when the harvest was safely brought into completion, he found that Ruth was lying at his feet. She was making a statement, if you will have me, I will be your wife. Boaz had certainly all the resources to meet, not just Ruth's material needs, but those of her mother-in-law. But the question for Boaz was, was he prepared to set aside the national prejudice and bias against Moab? Was he prepared to fulfill his obligation in those circumstances? 
Was he willing to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, and restore the family line of another man? There was an even closer relative whose right and responsibility it was to take Ruth and care for her as his wife. But he was not prepared to do so, presumably because he was already married and had children whose inheritance would be affected. But Boaz stepped in when this man failed Ruth because Boaz was both willing and able to marry Ruth. And from this decision of Boaz, this man of generosity came the blessing of God. When you trace the genealogy of the Lord down through the generations, there appear at times to have been circumstances in which that line was going to break, but it never did in the sovereignty of God. And Boaz was in that chain that led to our Lord. And so was Ruth. God's purposes will always be fulfilled even when human beings look as if they're going to fail. Because the child that was born to Ruth and Boaz was not just the grandfather of King David, that most famous of kings of Israel, but 30 generations or thereabouts later, um, their descendant was the Messiah himself. God's redemptive purposes were fulfilled through the decisions that Ruth and Boaz made. What's the lesson for us? Will we take the easy option like this unnamed relative who would not marry Ruth? Or when we are able, are we willing to pay whatever the price might be to do the right thing, whether that cost is financial or otherwise? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the timeless spiritual lessons that there are therein. We will pray that we will take them to heart, that we will see the importance of being prepared to do the right thing in life, even when that decision appears to cost. In Jesus' name, amen.